Hello and welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder of Home Beauty, Hilary Holmes. Hilary discovered her love of makeup in her final year of high school. And although she tells me that initial affinity for beauty may not have come from the right place, to this day, she connects to the transformative energy she felt upon that discovery. Despite her love of makeup, Hillary studied and worked in agriculture. In 2009, the recession hit, and after being made redundant, Hillary relocated to London where her sister was living. She soon found a job on a cosmetics counter, and so her career in beauty was born. After returning to Australia and building up her freelance business, Hillary opened the first Hillary Holmes makeup location in 2016 and a second only four years later. It was from within these spaces that Hillary's now iconic masterclasses were born. Classes designed to empower women to back their own beauty rather than following a formula they'd grown up with in women's magazines. In 2021, following years of product development and a truly serendipitous encounter with her now manufacturer, Hillary launched Home Beauty. The brand launched with a single skew, and over the last 12 months, Hillary has carefully and consciously expanded that range to an edit of four, with a fifth product set to launch only a fortnight from now. In this conversation, Hillary shares the importance of finding the right people to help you grow your business, the links she's discovered between beauty and her own mental health, and the story behind the man she calls her $30,000 husband. I know that you're path, I suppose, towards the beauty industry wasn't necessarily a linear one, but I want to start right back at the very beginning. What is your earliest memory of beauty? Um, It was, so I think um, I tried, I'm trying to think. So it was definitely um, my mum, so uh, to sort of set up the thing. So my mum lived in housing commission for a lot of her life. Um, but prior to that, so she was in housing commission for about 20 plus years. She still is. Um, she, prior to that, she had a bit of wealth. And so, um, when I used to go and see her, um, she lost custody of us at a quite a young age. So when I used to go see her on my weekends, she used to have in her bathroom um, in the commission housing, um, all of her long con, which she had, she had gotten when we had, money and so she'd held on to that makeup for a really long time clearly was very out of date however she used to always refer to that and I think it was probably a reminder to her of you know her who she really was and and I think when I used to go into the bathroom and and steal it which would make her really angry um I feel like it kind of gave me that sort of north star a little bit as well so I remember going to it and using it and thinking this is really luxe and beautiful and I always used to say mum feeling really proud about it so for me it was like this real big juxtaposition of complete wealthy vibe you know really beautiful um, high-end makeup with you know a very poor environment so I felt like my earliest memory really showed the the shadow on the light of of um not just beauty but also how you can show up for yourself and yeah it was a really um it was a really interesting experience sort of diving into that makeup bag that's a bit full circle when we get to you know your whole beauty ethos now now I know that you studied agriculture but when you were younger say around this time what did you want to be when you grew up I I didn't have any career goals I think (laughs) Like, to be completely honest, I think I was just so busy surviving. I think mm-hmm. I I don't remember, I don't remember, and there's no memories that have come back to me that people are like, oh, my God, I wanted to be this. My family paid me out for this. And, I mean, I think my number one thing was just I got up each day and how was I going to survive? So I actually, up until year 12, when we got force-fed to make this decision on the rest of our lives, <laughs> I actually never had any. There you go. Well, I mean, also in year 12, I understand it was around this time that you sort of discovered makeup, you developed an interest in it. What was it that drew you to makeup and how did it make you feel? So I, um, 
so obviously mum's makeup was, you know, touch point a little bit through my early teens. And then I was 102 kilos at 16. So I was a big girl from a, from a really young age. And so um, when I, my parents took me out, my dad and my stepmom took me out of year 11 in Victoria out of a girls' school. And then they took me up to Queensland and put me in a co-ed school. I all of a sudden, I think, got taken out of the safety of being surrounded by girls and then being no judgment and just, you know, all of us just existing to oh my god the male gaze and I think I got really overwhelmed and I was this really big girl on the sunshine coast of Queensland they were all fit and skinny and so I was like oh my god what I need to sort of sort this out I need to I need to look better I look I look pretty gross so I need to look better and I um I discovered the good old uh summer glow bronzer um and I remember just like piling it on my face I would just rub it all over my face my stepmom would say, you look crazy. And I said, thank you. And um, yeah, that's kind of where it kicked off. I then really started discovering it quite heavily in year 12. I found a really amazing makeup artist on the Sunshine Coast who would just really transform my energy from a very insecure girl to feeling really, really beautiful. So it was, that was a really big turning point for me from going from a very, you know, not feeling good about myself to feeling good. Obviously at that point, it was a very um, coming from the wrong place, but it was definitely a really great transformation for me energetically to realize that that's what makeup had the ability to do. So wrong place aside, clearly a, a reasonably early affinity for makeup. So why agriculture? <laughs> People get so shocked about it. And I guess, yes, definitely um, very opposite. Um, so I, prior to going to Queensland, we had a property. Uh, my dad had land all the, while we were growing up. I used to have horses and even to now land and the night and nature and all of that has such a sole purpose for me. I just feel so grounded when I'm in the country. And so obviously when I left year 11, I moved to Queensland, I went from the country to the ocean. Um, but for me at that point, I'd really locked in my BCE kind of um, subjects and I really felt such a strong connection to land that that's what I thought. Because I, again, hadn't really kind of given any consideration around my career. And I just sort of thought, well, I love horses. I love the land. I'll just do that as a career. Little did I know that those next, you know, four or five years at uni, uh, I failed a lot. Um, and then the further two years in the industry would be the most triggering experience uh, off the back of my childhood. So it was like, it was like the worst and best thing ever because, yeah, it was just a, a big mix of emotions and um, trigger points. Well, we know that something good came out of it because that is where you met your now husband. So there's, <laughs> there's one yeah, I, positive. I, I'm calling my $30,000 husband. Like I still haven't paid that bloody hex bill. And I just laugh. I say he was worth every cent. Like I am so grateful to study ag. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. Actually, there's been a few hard things, but studying ag in a very male dominated and I was bullied really, really, really badly. Like I had to move university campuses because there was this big rumor that got spread around me, which was not true. And it was really tough. It was a really hard time. But I found my husband there um, in, a, in a big pile of um, poor mental health. And it was he has been my absolute savior. So I'm so grateful to have studied it. Well, that's good. I mean, silver lining. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is where the career direction starts to shift so upon realizing that you didn't want to continue with this career path understandably so given how triggering it was you moved to London you pursue a career in makeup now I have a few questions about this time firstly was the plan to move to London specifically for a career in beauty or did you move to London without a career goal and then settle on beauty when you got there it was such a, an amazing, like universal, like it was so crazy how the path was supposed to be laid out. So um, in the, it happened in 2009, the recession hit. I then got made redundant from my job because it was such a bad experience that I just was failing miserably at doing it. I got made redundant. There was no jobs in Australia in agriculture. I then realised at that time, because even in through uni and in the early stages of my career, I really loved playing with makeup with people and I was doing quite a good job and Anyway, so I got my redundant, was on the dole for six months, could not mm -hmm. get a job. Um, my sister was living in London at the time and she said, Hillary, get your butt over here and just get a job. And I said, oh, no, she goes, come and do makeup. And I was like, no, there's no career in it for me. I don't want to be like a 60-year-old woman doing dead makeup. Like I really know. And she said, just come over here. So because I couldn't get a job, I was like, look, 
what's there to lose. So I um, didn't even have enough money. She had to put money in my account to make it look like I was like allowed to be in. So she um, I got over there and, you know, obviously I did look at options for ag over there. There wasn't really anything in central London. Um, mm. So I then uh, went and got a job with Smashbox Cosmetics and um, they, I guess, the gift of the gab and being Australian meant I got a job pretty quickly and um, I then got landed on the Oxford, like the Debenhams counter on the Oxford Street and that was the hardest four months ever. It was cold selling and, you know, I had a really big culture shock coming from very white, very narrow-minded Australia at the time to, you know, being full frontal to lots of different skin tones, ethnicities and, you know, lots of orthodox Jews. Like I remember doing a client and I was touching her hair and I'm like, this feels really strange. I went to go pull her hair back off her face and I'm like, what's, and she said, oh, I've got a wig on. And I was like, oh, okay, no worries. So there was a lot of, uh, it was pretty crazy how it all kind of happened. Well, that's interesting because do they, I mean, I obviously haven't gone to beauty school here, but are you taught all of that here or is it just, I mean, you know how to work with different ethnicities, skin tones, all of that from experience, but would that be taught? Well, I'm, I'm self-taught, so yeah. I didn't have the money to be able to, to learn. And so in the six months on the doll, I pretty much used the entire time to do all the research myself. I just, any bit of information I got onto and I would apply it into my, I guess the science degree came through because it made me, and even now, like I think I'm really analytical and go, right, well, if you've got a round face, how would we want to, you know, help enhance that? So um, not not taught. So I got mm. landed <laughs> I got eaten alive. Like, you know, I'd have a Nigerian woman walk up to me and they take no prisoners. Those women are very boundaried and they're like, you do this and you do it well. And I was, I just got eaten alive for the first eight months. So particularly when I, um, you know, moved on to a different workplace, uh, that's probably when everything started to kick in. Probably the best way to learn, thrown yeah, into the deep end. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I know that you spent a lot of time with Mac. Was that over there or was that when you got back to Australia? Yeah, so after four months with Smashbox, which was, again, really great because Smashbox didn't just have clients walking in the way Mac does. So I had to really, you know, learn how to sell. Um, So when I went into Mac, um, there was another Australian girl on this particular counter. There was 48 girls on this one counter, three boys. There was a lot of people. And uh, I drowned for the first eight months. It was really overwhelming. Um, Yeah, it was really hard, like fast-paced, but it was the best learning experience. I got so many different opportunities to watch other artists who were incredible at what they did I know I was the the creepy girl who would stand behind the other counters and watch them watch my favorite artists work and I just got so much exposure there it was really really great so I went from you know working at Mac over there for 18 months um and I did really great and I became one of their most um their best-selling artists um I guess the the experience that I had, um, you know, just naturally with my ability to talk, but also with Smashbox, I kind of went in there, you know, really willing to sell and that really lent into being, you know, really great. So I had really good KPIs there and I was sort of acknowledged in the brand to be the the girl that sold. Um, but I really wanted to be the girl that was the most amazing makeup artist. So I worked really heavily on the side to, to make sure that would happen. At what point did you start building up your freelance client list? I remember really specifically there was this one client that came in and she she was bald. She had a headscarf on and she had no eyebrows or lashes. And, um, you know, we all remember that old vibe at Mac, you know, even I did. You'd walk in and be very intimidated by the black, the heavy makeup, the aggressive music, you know, the sometimes aggressive staff. And um, I could just remember her walking on like many women, just feeling looking really insecure and nervous. And, and I went up to her and said, hi, how are you going? And And she started crying and she said, look, I've just gone through a really heavy amount of chemo and I've lost all my hair and I'm feeling really unfeminine and I just don't feel beautiful. And I said, "Um, come and sit down and let's have some fun. Let's talk about how you want to feel. And that started the narrative of really understanding that how someone wants to feel actually probably dominates more than how someone wants to look. And I then started to get this, she left that experience absolutely transformed she felt heard she felt seen she felt you know acknowledged in her pain she was educated and and I didn't try selling her based on that so it was really lovely and and I really recognized in that moment that I had so much more to give than what a retail environment would do so I started to find that those relationships started to kind of come up and in London there's no shortage of people wanting freelance makeup artists so I, I started doing them on the side and 
obviously London was only a short-term thing because uh, my my visa was running out. Um, so when I came back to to, Mel- um, to Melbourne, um, you know, that's when it really started to kick off to, to start building the freelance. On building those relationships, is there any advice that you can offer to freelance makeup artists who are looking to build up that client base? Oh, this is... This is a big one, I think, because uh, there isn't a lot of guidance for young makeup artists um, mm. and it is a competitive field. And I think back then, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I don't feel like there was a lot there to be given and offered to makeup artists to develop themselves and to, you know, um, to know how to grow. So back then it was it was tough, but I have definitely learned that, um, you know, you need to sort of have an idea of what subcategory you want to go into because there are a lot, you know, back then I thought makeup was makeup, but you've got television and film, you've got, you know, um, special effects, you've got TV, you've got normal beauty. So there's a lots of different aspects and elements that you need to kind of decide that you like and then go into the stream that you want to go into. Um, I think you have to be really assured of yourself, even if you're not feeling overly confident I think when you start to be driven by other artists and start to compare yourself to other artists, it can really impact your own mental health, but also your ability to make really conscious decisions around your career. Um, I think, again, working on your mental health is really important. I think a lot of people that show up in the beauty industry initially as makeup artists do have a little bit of, um, you know, that mental health stuff that they want to work on, that feeling of worth. You know, makeup has that initial kicker. We obviously find that a lot of the time off the back of not feeling good enough, um, so I think makeup artists, you know, having work, at least working on their mental health makes they making better decisions around themselves and making having clearer boundaries for themselves and their clients because that can really come back to bite them in the butt if they're not clear on what they want to do and, and what they, you know, um, want to attract in. Um, and I think don't rely on courses and other people to show you what to do because, I mean, I've heard time and time again in the people that I've hired that it's not what they've learned in the courses that are actually the things that are really important. A lot of the time they don't learn a lot. So I think it's important to obviously if you do a course um, or you are shown by other people to take that with a grain of salt, but then also ask questions, self-inquire, you know, dig dig into an area that you like and find out more questions and answers because that's you growing. At the end of the day, it's a creative field and you've got to find your own, own path of it. Having spent so much time overseas and of course working here in Australia what are some of the biggest differences that you've seen in the way that people in the UK approach beauty as compared to Australians oh it was like so different and because I'd started my career in the UK Mm -hmm. I didn't have that Australian aesthetic to make up so I kind of came and it still impacts me today like I still definitely see my references coming through my makeup so look, this is makeup, like I was there in 2009. So it was, you know, a good few, you know, over a decade ago that I was there. But back then, and it might, and I think it is still to this day, very much more heavier in their application. They like more of a glam. They like colour. I do wish that Australian women and anyone wearing makeup would wear more colour on their lips. You know, in a over there, they love lipstick. Um, I had a lot of the Essex girls and they absolutely loved the makeup. Like it was always so great to and have fun with it because, you know, obviously more glam means it's more, you know, it's a different way of approaching it and it's a bit more time, you know, time spent on it and a bit more technical. So um, they definitely like more makeup. They like more colour. And I used to get obviously all the different ethnicities. So I'd get traditional weddings. I'd get a lot of Bangladesh. I'd get a lot of Indian. I'd get a lot of Chinese. And so doing those sort of traditional makeups really allowed me to explore how culture impacts beauty. So when I came back, it was obviously the Australian aesthetic is very natural and paired back and bronzy. And and it really allowed me to explore those areas. And, and, you know, uh, I had to completely change my style when I moved back to Australia. So move back you did. And then in 2016, I believe you opened your first Hillary Holmes makeup space in Geelong. Mm-hmm. What was it that prompted you to open your own salon? I think it was it was just that I had so many clients. I think um, I'd finished up with Mac. I'd been freelancing for a year or two, and it was just like crazy. And I and I uh, when I initially had that conversation with my sister all those years ago about makeup you know I'd always wanted to ensure that there was a career for me I didn't I just didn't want to be that person that was 
you know, really old and, and still grinding away. I, I've always been very driven. Um, I've always wanted to create a career path that, you know, allowed me to earn more money and get smarter around my time spent. So um, when the opportunity came and I was just a lot of people, I thought, well, let's open up a salon. And, and knowing that um, that was my, at that time, actually, I was really like, this is what I want to do. I want to progress forward. Um, and I did. I sort of knew that it was going to be the first of a couple of salons. And I knew that it was the start of the big part of what I wanted to build, which was initially Hillary Holmes makeup. I would love to chat about staffing. We don't talk about this enough on the podcast and it's such a huge part of growing a business. What advice can you offer on finding the right people? I completely agree. I think um, there needs to be a lot more conversation around staffing. It Mm. is obviously we've noticed post-pandemic, it has been a really tough game, um, more around hospitality in those areas. Um, For me, it's been a really interesting journey. I'm not going to say that I'm a natural people manager. Um, I am a pure creative and I do think, you know, maybe conversation I have a lot is that I feel really sad for creatives because creatives are geniuses in their own way but a lot of them aren't leaning towards being business you know they're they're two very different categories so to be a creative that also wants to create a business it's you have to kind of really want to work at it um when i'm hiring people i want to look for a few things absolutely initiative assertiveness and awareness are things that i absolutely love i don't want to get someone on and me have to lead them the whole time like i want to set them up with training and all of that but i need someone who wants to kind of work at it and and i want to see kind of i guess qualities that show me that they're not wanting to be fed every single move they need to make um I really think that it's important to look for loyalty as well. Um, I really invest in my staff and I think it's important to find those qualities in people that they want to be there for the long term. You know, I remember back in the day when I was working in ag and all of the questions were like, you know, we want, we're looking for, it was always that you know, we're looking for people who want to stay long term. And now I really understand that because you're investing not just financially, not just emotionally, not just energetically, so much time into staff you know, I've always wanted to ensure that the staff that I have that stay with me so I can build them and develop them and train them um, and also so that they move with the business as well. Um, so loyalty is a huge one for me. Um, a big thing for people wanting to take on staff, I think it's really important that you don't rely on those staff to make the business whole. Um, I think I learned some valuable lessons early on that if you are looking for staff to make up your business and to make your business better, it means you're putting too much pressure on those people to um, make it something. And I've learned over the years that staff are really wanting a boundary environment so they can show up each day for themselves and to feel safe and secure in their job without the pressure that everything's on them. And I think uh, for a business owner to also feel that way and not want them to be in business to make it better but simply to support it to move forward I think just um, means that you don't set up the business structure and then I've seen this time and time again with other businesses that the businesses sort of fall over because those people will move on and the whole business has been based around that those staff members and then it collapses or it goes to shit pretty quickly because they're they're not able to survive without those team members in the in the business. Mm. You opened your South Melbourne location only four years after opening that first one in Geelong, which do you understand how insane that is? Yeah, just I mean, as an aside, <laughs> I mean, I think insane is probably a great little um, <laughs> word. Just to- as I was looking at the timeline, I was like, does she know? Think at the time, I just, I mean, look, now I'm really deep diving into my mental health. I realised that my drive is huge. Yeah. I have a huge drive and the drive is was driven by my trauma of my childhood and a lot of the things. And I realized that it was a very unhealthy drive. So yes, uh, was that uh, silly? Yes. But also I, I really took a, took the momentum of it as well. Um, I learned some really, really valuable lessons in that. Um, you know, I was doing a lot of the work. I didn't have anyone doing operations or t- team management. I had like 15 staff, you know, tr- it was a lot. I realized that there was a lot of mistakes made and there was also some really great things that I learned. Um, but yeah, it was a big, it was a big move. Um, I was, I knew that when I opened up Geelong that I wanted to open up at that time, multiple locations around Australia. Uh, I realized pretty quickly how hard that is to manage, um, 
and also uh, complete transparency, wages and overheads absolutely kill small business. Mm. So this type of work requires a lot of um, of team members and I realised really quickly that, you know, I was breaking even for a really long time, but I then pretty quickly realised that I wasn't going to do the salons all over. Um, I think if you ask pretty much any small business if they're making profit I would say that the owner isn't taking anything home and probably been investing in the business for quite some time so I knew pretty quickly that it wasn't going to be a sustainable business if I did that and I knew that I wanted to move to product so um, I opened up Melbourne to simply open the platform up more and to get me into the hands and the arm and, the, and have people in my chair that I could really sort of start to build relationships with so um, yeah, I think South Melbourne was a really great move and um, it's a beautiful space and um, both the salons were really, really wonderful. Um, but, yeah, I feel like South Melbourne, I've really found my home there. Well, to have been able to open it just shows how high the demand was for your work. This might be a difficult question to answer, but what do you think it is about your approach to beauty that resonates with so many people? I think I think when clients sit in my chair, they they feel a sense of um, familiarity with me. They feel seen by me because I see myself in so many of my clients, in all of my clients. I see their insecurities. I see that a face of makeup isn't what they're there for. What they're there for is to see themselves as they should be, which is that they are phenomenal and beautiful and perfect in in all of what they are and I think because I've been so open and honest about myself and my feelings of worth and because the business dynamics are very much to you know there's a very strong correlation between me my mental health work and my feelings on myself and this business I think clients feel a real sense of resonance and when they sit in my chair they understand that that vulnerability is held and that I look after them and they feel safe to explore that and so when I also pair that with beautiful makeup it's like this really lovely connection and um a client isn't a client to me I don't want this number situation we've had a very strong no dickhead policy from the very start Uh, we are very much about and you know you've seen this on socials I I very much am very boundaried around what I believe is acceptable and non-acceptable conversations and communication amongst people and if people are not our people that's so fine I have no bad ill will with them but it's just not what I want to keep in in the brand so um, I think when people come into the salon the other thing that's really amazing is that everyone's like wow everyone's so lovely and there's a really lovely vibe that happens amongst clients when we're all in together. I think a no dickhead policy is essential personally. (laughs) We're aligned on that, Gemma Watts. (laughs) Before we get on to home beauty, I would love to touch on your masterclasses because I do think they are such a special part of the business and something that I really do think that you've become famous for. For the uninitiated, what are the masterclasses and why do you think they have garnered this cult following so it was so interesting um when I first opened up Geelong there was just all these people saying oh my god I just don't know what I'm doing I don't know I'm like I don't don't know what I'm doing I don't know and there was always this such self-deprecating talk I hate my nose I hate my eyes I have eyes and I'd be like you have bloody small eyes you're you've got really big eyes you know like what are you talking about and I realized who is teaching people about themselves and there was all these little, I think at that time, there was no education for the everyday woman. There might have been, you know, a couple of classes here and there around Australia, but it was very much geared towards the education for makeup artists. And I just thought it was, for me, devastating to know so many people don't know themselves. You know, I had a 50-year-old woman come in being like, my daughter yells at me for wearing blue eyeliner. And I think, well, who's taught you to not wear it? Like, who's, mm. who's taught you about your face? And so really quickly I said, nah, this has to change. So I started doing the Back to Basics Masterclass. This was a class that anyone could come to. We've had multiple, like many, many, many makeup artists come as well. Um, I've trained from salons to someone who would walk in saying, I don't know what blush is. You know, we literally have had everyone. And the whole idea of it is it really takes it back to, let's let not just me, I think the big important part is that I don't tell you put A on B. I don't tell you what your face is. I ask you to look at your face and tell me what is it about it that you love? What is the areas that you would like to kind of 
reduce, you know, um, what are the areas you want to enhance? And so to make that conversation and then apply it into the technicality of what we're trying to do is, you know, are your lids really small and you want to make your eyes look bigger and more awake? Let's do it. And I talk about the theory behind why we do it and then also why and how we do it. So, um, and different products. I really am trying to set people up to make much more conscious decisions around how they put makeup on. Um, they've really evolved. They've become crazy amazing popular um the energy is phenomenal we'll have women sobbing by the end um we've had people who have been models who are just shocked at how transformative like transformative it is for people and and it's been it's been an absolute joy and a privilege to be able to create that space for people to come in we've had men women we've had some mother and daughter ones to to give them the chance for their mothers to show them what they never were um, one of my favourites is the 50 plus masterclass. We get to really show these older women who have somehow managed to get to this point of never being shown um, and have winged it this far and, you know, still keen to learn. So that's really amazing. It's just, it's a joy. It's a privilege for me to do it. And, and it's something that I am absolutely going to always ensure carries through everything that we do. Education is a really big, big part of what we are doing with Home Beauty and Hillary Homes Makeup. Let's get into home beauty. You mm. officially launched in 2021. What was it that made you want to develop your own brand? What was the gap that you wanted to fill? So when I opened up Hillary Homes Makeup Geelong, I knew then that that was why I was doing it. I actually, if you ask people who hung around me literally 10 years ago, they will tell you I always wanted to do a product line. When I saw it at, in London, the disconnection between a client, how they wanted to feel and the products and education around what they were doing. I knew that I wanted to do what I was really passionate about. And that was leaning all of those, you know, complexities together to create space for something. And I knew the product was going to be it. It was my way of getting into people's makeup bags to create the conversation there. Um, I'm really grateful that it's a very holistic approach. I wanted something that was like a perform. I'm a makeup artist at the end of the day. I'm also known for long wear. I'm, I'm known, I'll get clients, particularly like when I was doing my Chinese clients in London, they would have their makeup apply at 2 or 3am and they would be finished like at 3am the following day. It was really massive day. So I knew that I wanted something that, you know, all my product had to have performance behind it. But I've also been really lucky. I think when I opened up the salons, I was asking, I was asking questions the whole time. I was listening the whole time, not just to support them, but to find out what they needed, what they were looking for and what was going to make the biggest impact in their makeup bag. So, um, yeah, it was really, really great. I think we were really, really lucky that, look, the, the, the pandemic completely destroyed my business from a service perspective. I had to shut, shut down Geelong. Um, uh, I realised that I could have fought for it, it but knowing that I was breaking even on that business after working my guts out, I realised that it was time for me to to be smarter about what I was doing. Um, and so when we opened up Home Beauty, um, you know, I knew that was my, I really feel like it's my purpose. It's my ability to really create a much larger platform and to speak to so many Um because ultimately I'm very driven by the actual message of what I'm doing. I believe that education and products simply support that. Um, so my goal is to change the way people fundamentally feel about themselves and how they approach their beauty routines, um, to change the way they feel each day in a positive way. Um, and I believe that, yeah, home beauty and the education that we do to support that is absolutely how we're going to do it. I did want to ask you about the timing of the launch because lockdown was a huge detriment to beauty of course to your um, salon spaces but the timing of the launch of the product do you think that being in the middle of a lockdown was of any benefit was it entirely a hindrance was it a bit of both um I think I mean ignoring the service side which just was destroyed gone it was yeah. absolutely exactly what I needed mm -hmm. I had Obviously, we had click and collect, which was really great for the Hillary Homes makeup. So I was able to work and I slaved. I, I took that privilege of having click and collect to my absolute benefit. I worked my guts out over the pandemic. I didn't lay low at all. I was like the, the universe, as always, stepped in and said, it's time. You've got to do this. And I loved it. I realized how much space I had. And when I have space to create just how much more I can do. So I really recognised that product was where I really wanted to align myself. And um, yeah, it, it, look, there was definitely a lot of impacts with COVID on 
shipping and you know we know that that um i obviously wanted to be and i still do want to be very much australian made um but there are a lot of manufacturing restraints in australia so there's a lot of things that i can't get um so i was really impacted by shipping from overseas and um we all know that freight went to absolute hell over mm. the pandemic and still is so there's been a lot of impacts however so grateful so grateful for the pandemic to give me the space to be able to create it and um yeah so september last year we we dropped it to the market and um oh it was it was a joy happy birthday home beauty was the plan always to launch with the primer yeah i think look i've made some I probably could have played out some things better, but I think I wanted the first product to be something that every single person would use. Um, I wanted something that there was a lot of happy mistakes. I I made it to be worn underneath makeup. However, obviously the pen, and when I developed it, by the way, it was the start of the pandemic. So I didn't realize that through the pandemic, the makeup applications and the way people approach beauty would change. So we knew at the start of the pandemic, people loved makeup. Post-pandemic, everyone's liking a much more of a relaxed makeup, you know, very minimal. So I obviously, when I started developing at the start, I was going up to underneath makeup, which will be worn as a primer, but it'll be a complexion boosting primer because there was nothing in the market that did that. And I never wanted to, and I still do, I never create product to mimic another. Um, I get really sad when we get duped or we're a dupe of something. I really don't like that. Um, I know people are doing that to save money, but for me, I want to stand alone in what we're doing and create product that um, that hasn't been seen to a degree, but also um, that has been completely created from what I've learned. And so, yeah, when the Primer launch, I wanted it to be something everyone could use. It's been a happy mistake that everyone wears by itself pretty much because it makes their skin look so beautiful by itself. Um, but the primer was always it. I wanted to be the first primer in the market that was shaded, that had a really big skin focus in terms of key ingredients, that was really performance-driven um, and looked beautiful. So what led to that launch? There's so much that goes into bringing a concept to life. So how did you go about finding the right manufacturer, sourcing packaging, funding the business? There are so many steps that go into a product being available for consumers. Oh, massively. And, and you know, we were, I had my hands, my knees chopped off at the knees and my hands tied behind my back the whole time. You mm. know, I had been working, even though we were really not making much money, I was saving all my tax money. I was doing all of this thing to save money to do the launch and the bloody pandemic took all my savings. So I went into this ready to go, but then I was by the end of the, you know, when we're ready to launch and to put all this money into it, I had no money there. So we had to be really, really smart. Um, so... First and foremost, I had to start, I started doing mood boards, obviously on Pinterest. Mood boarding was really important for me as a creative, still is. Um, I went and had a look for some manufacturers. I knew I wanted to be Australian made. Um, I did my research. Um, I contacted one, the one that I wanted to work with. to sent an inquiry on their website. I simply just Googled the shit out of it. And I got a phone call about 10 minutes later. Um, hello, Hillary. Uh, yes, hello. Hi, this is Lala from Lala. Um, I'm the managing director and I just wanted to tell you that I was thinking about you in the shower this morning. Stop. No, not joking. And I went, well, I'm a little creeped out, but tell me more. <laughs> and she said, I've been following you. And I look at that time, you know, my, my following was relatively small. It was like 10,000 people. So to think that I had, anyway, it was so weird. So then wow. I said, so tell, she goes, I just really love what you're about. I feel such, I, I love what you're doing. You speak to me. And I thought this woman works with the biggest makeup brands in Australia. And she's telling me this. And I was at that point, I was way too small for them to work with me. They would, any other, they would have turned me away straight away. Um, but she's like, I, I want to work with you. And they have been an absolute joy. My relationship with them has been so much more deeper than probably a normal manufacturing relationship. Mm-hmm. I go out for coffee with them. Um, I'm allowed to. They don't really allow it, but I go into the labs and work with them directly. I get really, because I'm very kinesthetic with the way that I'm like touch and feel and up the pigment there and do this. And they're like, Hillary, you are the most privileged little person mm-hmm. ever. But I take them in croissants and I, I very much let them know how grateful I am. Um that's been a real joy to be honest and that's been something that led the charge with a lot of the things I wanted to make sure that all the relationships should be held with everyone that was in the business whether it was manufacturer you know um, our 
a graphic designer that it's so much more than the actual service we wanted it to be they felt really aligned with the brand and they they felt like that they had the ability to impact this message and, and it actually really genuinely has happened and um it's been amazing so um look a lot of it's google to be honest a lot of it is asking 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 you know you ask your manufacturers do you know any of these and you know the relationships you build and i'm a very big advocate for ensuring you build really good healthy relationships um as you know, Jen, like you've got to build healthy relationships around you. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying in a fake way, you know, like you'll align with the people that you align with, but relationships in the industry and around you are the most important part of building up business because they will help you. If they understand who you are and what you're actually to achieve, people around you will do anything they can do to help. Mm-hmm. Relationships are everything. Mm-hmm. You have since launched a second shade of that now iconic home beauty primer as well as two shades of highlighters. How does that product development process work for you? Have you always had a plan of what you wanted to launch and in what order or are you working more reactively based on what your clients are asking for? How does that process go for you? Um, I, I think I'm really not about trends. I And it's interesting because uh, today I'm going to talk about trends <laughs> at a talk. <laughs> but I bring a very different thing into it and that is trends come and go. You know, everyone's going to tell you what to do and how to do it. But this is about creating your own narrative and your own and your own trends. This is about understanding what works for you. And, and I definitely have my game plan out to the end of next year on what I'm doing. Um, and that'll develop slowly. And I could probably tell you the next four years what I want to launch. But... For me, it's about, um, you know, like I said to you earlier about when you're a creative, you have to stick to your own path. You know, it's really important that you do that because otherwise you get warped into this, you know, Charlotte Tilbury is developing this product and it's amazing. Oh my God, I'm a failure. Well, she can do her and she does it very, very well, but I'm going to stick in my lane and know with my experience and my knowledge what I need to create. And so when I launched the highlighters, I'm trying to build the makeup bag out um i wanted to do something that and again you've got to be really smart because product development is very expensive everyone asked me it was funny i ran into um i was in the security line at the airport last night in sydney and a woman said to me um oh my god you're hillary holmes and i thought oh my god this is a moment because you know like little old me and she said i love your primer um can you bring up some foundation soon and i said my love i would love to but do you know how much that's going to cost me Mm. so you will be noticing as I launch, there are smaller SKUs. I'm not going to be launching a lot of things that have to have a lot of shades because I can't afford that. You know, it's going to cost a lot of money. And, you know, we'll talk about, you know, about it if you want and later about just how you know much pressure there is on smaller businesses to keep up with the markets that are very expensive and dropping lots of things. Um, but the highlighters I knew I could do two shades have huge impact across tone and that they could impact across many uses on the face. So um, the highlighters were really great and I'm super proud of them. And um, yeah, there's so much more to come. Well, I did want to ask about some of the biggest learnings and the challenges. So perhaps a nice segue to talk about that, that pressure. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, of course there's beacons of lights in the beauty industry. We know that Fenty completely changed the game with shade. Mm -hmm. We know that Charlotte Tilbury has completely changed the way of like, you know, the performance we know that there's other brands out there doing amazing things. We know like Bread Beauty Supply, Mavar has changed the game for coiled hair. We know there's brands out there really being innovative. But for these big brands like Fenty and Charlotte Tilbury, they have billions of dollars behind them. So when they can drop, how many how many shades has Fenty got, like 50? I think something upwards of that. There it's is unbelievable. No, unbelievable. And it's amazing. Mm. I'm so happy they've done that. I can't do that. I just can't. And so when people say to me, can you drop foundations? I'm like, my love, I would love to in a heartbeat. But that's going to take me a really long time to save that money. And I think people sort of look at the success of the first primer and go, you must be rolling in it. Absolutely not. I'm the brokest I've ever been because everything has to go back into redevelopment and to new, new product development, which is called NPD. Mm-hmm. So... My challenges, absolutely, like the financial investment is really challenging. I've got to play things very smart and that's why a lot of the things you'll see me launching this year are smaller number of shades and um, and are things that I, I hope that everyone sees that they need. So later down the track, there'll be more, that will be more specific to people. But at the moment, it's like these are things that everyone can use. Just Googled it. Fenty launched with 40 shades and they'd expanded to 50 by 2019. 
which is <sighs> amazing, but not what a small business can. No, pump out. and then you you got to remember as well, like if you go out with 50, 40 or fifty shades, whenever you go into, you got to imagine if she's going to Sephora, then they mm. require a number of SKUs. <laughs> like you've got to fulfill those SKUs. It's it's crazy, and I mean even just from a business management perspective to be able to manage 50 SKUs is a lot. So, you know, um, that's going to just take a lot, a lot more time. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm next year. We'll seeing some, some really wonderful things for the brand, but um, for now I just need to be really smart with how we do it. And I'm doing everything to build it up to be financially smart um, because cash flow from a business perspective is the toughest thing. And it's something that I manage literally daily. Um, I have to be really involved in that process because I do a lot of the production. And so invoices are flying at me. And then we'll have these moments where things are going really well. We've got some savings there. We're ready to do something like a shoot or a campaign or you know, get some really cute boxes. And all of a sudden this huge, massive invoice for $70,000 comes at me and I, all of a sudden, I'm back to zero and I have all these other people wanting invoices. And so I think again, it comes back to the relationships, the people that you owe money to and, and, you know, you, you show that you are, um, your, I think integrity is a really important word. If the people that mm. you work with trust you, then that really helps. But again, it comes back to the support of those that are around you. If you say, look, I'm really sorry. Can I pay that invoice in um, a week or two? And, you know, and, to be honest, every single time they've been phenomenal. So that's really, really helped the brand. And, and then eventually, hopefully one day this will never really happen. I mean, I think that's a naive way of looking at it. If I move into going to retailers, they're going to be like, it's always going to be that, that cash flow pressure. But um, I think it's really important to be very smart about the decisions you make um, and the relationships you build. Mm. You have been a part of the beauty industry for upwards of 12 years now. Over that time, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen within the beauty industry? I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm really proud of the industry. I'm really proud about where it's going. And I'm really proud about the players that are in that who are making really lovely energetic changes. Because as we know, it was a really challenging game, you know, 10 years ago. It was mm. a very competitive market, very bitchy. It was full of a lot of um, insecurity. And I think that came out in the way relationships played out. Um, but I'm so excited about where it's heading at the moment. I mean, even just looking at the way when we do events and we connect with people. And again, it's all about alignment for the people that, you know, it resonates with. Um, the industry is doing great things. And I think it's a challenging thing because, um, you know, if you think about the creative industry, right, you know, I talked about this before earlier, when you get a creative and you're asking them to be a viable business, they are two very opposing things. Mm. So as a creative wanting to do a business in the beauty industry, we're pretty much pre predominantly um, creatives. If you are wanting to build a viable business in the beauty industry, you need to be a very smart business operator and it's not going to come naturally for a lot of people and you have to sort of grow and learn. And, and I, every day I'm making, I'm making moves that I probably would not have done, but you've got to be soft and kind on yourself and say, right, how can I do that differently? And, and there's lots of things that I've probably done over the years that um, I needed to change. And I'm really working on that very actively. I hope to be a leader with, um, with calling out, um, I guess, um, bad behavior, but also um, leading with how maybe we should be, we trying to work with each other and it's not going to be perfect. And there, there's a lot of work to be done still, but um, I'm really proud about, the relationships that um, I guess the industry is really starting to, to build and and the businesses they're starting to create. Um, but I, I do uh, quite honestly feel very sad about the beauty industry. Um, I was talking literally about it yesterday to someone saying, I don't think people really recognise, for example, a hairdressing salon or a beauty salon, they're not making money. And then who are the people, and it, it comes back to the patriarchy and, and just how much female led trades are undervalued and I get really devastated. I know just how little money they're making and how stressed they are and how much of an impact it has on their home life and their personal sense of self. Um, and I think that 
if there's something that I can really try and amplify with my transparency is to say that we have the ability to not undervalue a hairdresser for how much it costs to get a full head of foils done. You know, how undervalue someone or talk down or be rude about when um, your nail technician's not getting back to you with a booking because she's managing all the things. I think there's lots of ways that we can really uh, realign ourselves with the way that we carry ourselves in the industry as well um, to make sure that we're really supporting those around us to allow them to thrive. On that, what changes do you think we can expect to see from the beauty industry over the next few years? Um, I think from an actual manufacturing point of view, I think that there is a look, don't get me started on the diversity issues in Australia. Mm. I think um, I am really excited. Look, I just look at it as an opportunity. I mean, like I'm so excited because if no one else is bloody going to do it, I am absolutely there to do it. And it's going to take some time and I've been transparent about that, but it's time to be more conscious about what we're doing, the messages we put out, what we're putting into our products and the way in which we carry ourselves. And it's time in Australia. And I have these conversations many a time. I mean, I'll do a person of colour masterclass and I am to my core not tokenistic about this. I am really excited. Um, some of my favourite people on this earth are women who have yearned to be heard and to, to walk into a shop and have their shade. Just the way we're ex- we're yearning to have a size 18 to 22 on the even bigger on the on the shelves. So, what are we expecting in the community? I think we're we're looking for consciousness. We're looking for transparency. We're looking for diversity. We're looking for really cool. Um, new technologies. And I think um, what I would really look forward to is seeing a little bit more uh, individualism and people not running off the back of others. I would love to see more um, creatives being uh, using their brains, which they are so full of uh, new ideas to create things that stand alone and don't run off the back of others. My final question, what is next for home beauty? Well, there is some um, I'm so excited. I can't tell you, Jen, how excited I am for this next product. I, I know that I've been slipping you some of them back in there. Just to- As someone who has been <laughs> secretly using said secret product, I too am excited. <laughs> the listeners will will know when when the time comes. Oh, absolutely. And it's a great, again, it's a product that everyone can use. It will absolutely make sense when it launches. Everyone will be like, of course she did. Of course she launched mm-hmm. this. If you followed me along, you know this is absolutely something I advocate for every single face. Um, there's some really lovely products coming out this year. Um, we've, only got, we've got two more launches, this one at the end of this month. So literally in like two weeks, we'll know more. Um, and then uh, at, around Christmas time will be another launch. And then next year is the big ones. There's some really big things coming through. Finally, we can start seeing some, uh, some. yeah, I'm excited for next year. It's going to be really great. That was Hilary Holmes, founder of Home Beauty, who you can find on Instagram at Hilary Holmes Makeup and at Home Beauty. To read more, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at jemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.